0: Welcome to Someday Is Here, a podcast for Asian American women on leadership and culture. I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni. This podcast has been created to carve out a space for Asian American women to explore and validate living in both Eastern and Western worlds. Each week we will celebrate our heritage and highlight Asian American history. My guests and I will explore our various Asian American journeys, both the parts that we are proud of and the parts that have brought pain. We'll discuss practical tips on leadership and our favorite comfort foods, of course. This is a place and a space to bring words and understanding to our shared experience living biculturally. I am so glad you're listening and look forward to your feedback. Enjoy the show. And welcome to Some Days Here. We have a special episode today in light of our current circumstances. Um, all of you know that we are in uh, in a time in history that our kids' kids will look back on one day and read about in 2020 about the pandemic, about um, the coronavirus, all of it. We are currently in uh, stay-at-home mode. Everyone is off the streets the freeways in LA are clear right now during rush hour it's just a very eerie um, abnormal time so there's also a lot of um, uncertainty and fear and as there's fear going about there's a lot of uh, growing mistreatment of Asian Americans and so I wanted to address what's been going on in the Asian American community in light of phrases that are being um, thrown out that the COVID-19 virus is a Chinese virus and why is that even hurtful? Uh, For those of you who are non-Asian, I hope this, this episode will help inform the reasons why the Asian American community is responding as they are. Um, I'm so thrilled that my friends were able to just band together just within a few hours and agree to do this um, special episode for you. So today I have the very first man on the Sundays Here interview, and that is Eugene Cho. And Eugene has been honored as one of 50 Everyday American Heroes, a recipient of the Frederick Douglass 200 which is included in a list of 200 people around the world who best embody the spirit and work of Frederick Douglass, one of the most influential figures in history. He's also the recipient of the 2017 Distinguished Alumni Award from Princeton Theological Seminary. He is the founder and visionary of One Day's Wages. Jeremy Lin loves this organization, by the way. It's fantastic. It's a grassroots movement of people, stories, and actions to alleviate extreme global poverty. Eugene is also the founder and former senior pastor of Quest Church, an urban, multicultural, multi-generational church in Seattle, Washington, which is where he lives right now. And he just released his most recent book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, which is so timely. And as we have had such... uh, He very respectfully tweeted this week about um, the president's use of Chinese virus and had such a crazy amount of pushback. He talks about a little bit in the interview, but um, the way he has responded has been exceptionally gracious. And I've been so impressed of how he lives, what he writes about. So he's on the show today. I'm really grateful for him. Um, the Washington Post picked up all of this um, online backlash from his uh, his tweet and he's just, he, his schedule is packed and yet he made time so i'm really really grateful for that i also have helen lee who was a guest on first season someday is here and helen is back again she was also a presenter at the live event uh helen has a ba in bioethics from williams college an mba from Babson college and an ma from wheaton college she's an award-winning author and writer and she is the Associate Director of Strategic Partnerships and Initiatives for InterVarsity Press and the Director of Content and Resource Development for Miseo Alliance. Helen has also previously served as an editor and marketer at IBP and acquired, edited, and marketed numerous books, in particular those by authors of color. Also on today's show are two women who have backgrounds in the medical field. Judy Dominic, Dominic, she's a friend that I had the privilege of interviewing and we'll have her episode airing in probably season three, but she is a cross-cultural bridge builder. She holds a BA in history from Rice University, an MS in epidemiology from the University of Texas School of Public Health, and an MS in physician's assistant studies from Baylor College of Medicine. So she has previously worked as a physician's assistant at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Also a new new friend to me whom I look forward to meeting eventually in person is um, Sena Rivas Sena, is an epidemiologist, health coach and author. She has an MPH in epidemiology and a clinical research background in infectious disease with National Institutes of Health, Moffitt Cancer Center and Florida Department of Health. And so they blend so much uh Perspective and clarity even in what's going on with COVID-19 and helping to even define terms. I think today's episode is so important because as Asian Americans, we will increasingly face um, a backlash and be targeted to be blamed for this virus that we have nothing to do with. And yet we are being pointed out and, um, and harassed for uh, being Asian American. And so really, what does it look like for us to respond? Um, How do we navigate this with our children who are being bullied? Um, What will this look like for us in the future? We kind of discuss quite a bit of that um, and more. So I really hope that you will take the time to listen to this episode. And if you find it helpful, please share with your friends. And um, I hope that we can continue to be a voice in this time in history and if we can link arms and help to bring uh, proper perspective and education and our voice if we can bring our voice into this time i think it's it's critical and i think this conversation is both needed and necessary for this time and this won't be the last conversation but hopefully this will be one that will inform and help us move into Uh, the coming weeks and months. So thanks for tuning in to this special episode. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Some Days Here and this special episode. We are, I'm very encouraged that my friends would jump on on such quick notice. We have the very first um, guest who is a, a male, who is male, wonderful Pastor Eugene Cho, who has just released a book called Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk. And as this whole coronavirus thing has been blowing up, I've been watching him live out his work. And so I'm really thrilled to have him. Helen Lee was a guest on season one, and she's a dear friend. And we have two medical friends. Judy actually will be on season three at this point. So we already taped an interview, but she brings in such a depth um, with her work with social justice as well as the medical background. And Senna is a brand new friend, but she has um, a lot of expertise in this area. So we're going to jump in to our conversation and um, here we are. So welcome to Some Days Here, friends. Okay, so we're going to jump in straight away. And um, the reason even why this podcast we wanted to bring together really quickly is right now out there in social media land. It's a little bit of a firestorm. There's a lot of terminology being thrown around. Um, there's a lot of fear, I think, that's in the Asian American community based on some of the the terms that are being thrown around. So I just wanted, actually, Eugene, if you could, Eugene, if you could just jump into this. But why is the term Chinese virus problematic?
1: Hey, it's a pleasure to join you and others uh, on this uh, distinguished uh, podcast. I'm honored to be the first, uh, I guess, uh, male to be on it. Uh, Gosh, where do we begin? Um, You know, just this past week, I wrote a response to a tweet from President Trump. Uh, We continue to pray for him and the whole task force in response to the coronavirus. Obviously, this is incredibly challenging. Uh, But I was shocked because my response um, in regards to his usage of Chinese virus, it was picked up by Washington Post and about 20 other newspapers. And someone told me that there's been probably about 20,000 plus responses, most of it very negative. Uh, I can't repeat some of the stuff that people are saying, but I would just begin by saying that it's not a secret that this virus uh, started, the origins are from Wuhan, China. Uh, It's not like we needed a new revelation uh, for the world to know that it came from that particular country. And the reason why it's problematic is because by now using Chinese as an adjective, what we're now doing is instigating blame, uh, fault, Uh, And as a result, it's creating a lot of danger. And this isn't speculation. Uh, There have been hundreds and hundreds of documented stories of women and men of not just Chinese, but Asian descent. And we can talk more about why uh, calling it Chinese impacts Asians everywhere. Uh, And it's incredibly tragic. Uh, Just this week, two days ago, I had two cousins, two relatives be screamed at physically, uh, uh, not necessarily abused, but threatened. Uh, and I wish I could say that these are just outlier stories, but they're not. And so as a result, when there's fear that is pervasive in culture and society, and we know that people are afraid and it's not just here in the United States, it's all around the world. I think our tendency, I think in our sinfulness is that we need to find people to blame. And typically, it needs to be the other. It needs to be the foreigner. And so, as a result, I find the usage of Chinese virus not just, it's not so much a matter of personal offense. It's actually very, very dangerous. And so, we need to speak about it. We need to collectively say this is wrong. And uh, as Asian Americans, there is the stereotype that we tend to be a bit more quiet, a bit more passive. And uh, enough of that, you know, I think there's, there's enough harm to our community. And the last thing that I'll just say and I'll pass it off to others is, it's another reminder to me at least, and I think to others that I've had conversations with is, uh, are we not one of, uh, are we not American? Are we not part of this country? Do our health, do our vibrancy, do our safety, does it not matter? And I'll just leave it at that for
0: now. That's great. Helen, do you want to add some thoughts? Sure. So I was thinking
2: about uh, even though the mechanism that the World Health Organization used in naming the virus, the official name of the virus is COVID-19. The CO stands for corona, the VI stands for virus, and the D stands for disease. And they have a helpful document that I'll make sure that we link to in the show notes for why they named this as it as they did, uh, very intentional decision on their part, and they do this actually with all of their naming of all these kinds of uh, instances of disease and virus to not stigmatize anybody and any population or any particular group. It's a very intentional choice on their part. So uh, they have a helpful document that describes their thinking on this. So they're they're very very mindful of what can happen when you ascribe. Uh, such as a, a phrase like Chinese virus, uh, what that can do in terms of the stigmatization that can happen and the re- racialization that's, that is happening to many people around the world, not just in uh, in the U.S. So uh, that's a, a helpful guide to say. Even the World Health Organization is thinking very intentionally about the, the impact the impact that names and words can have. And words are powerful. We know this. You know, we know how effective that they can be in both helping to heal but also helping to hurt or to causing hurt. Uh, so the fact that that we are as Asian Americans now trying to state for the larger culture to understand that this is a harmful name and a harmful use of the word Chinese in this case uh, is a really important message to continue to get out there because there are many people who don't understand that. And I think that uh, there is a whole process that's happening, I think, in the larger, broader culture right now of conversation and discussion, uh, sometimes productive, sometimes not so productive about the fact that, well, this started in China. What's the big deal? There is a process of education. There's a process of, um, of conversation that is needing to happen that uh, to, to help bring people along to understand more fully. Uh, why it is so harmful and why it is so stigmatizing. So we're seeing a whole range, a whole spectrum of understanding uh, from some of the top leaders in our government all the way down. And uh, clearly there's a lot of education and conversation that still needs to happen because there are so many people who don't understand how this can be a stigmatizing and harmful appellation to be uh, putting out there into the world.
0: I absolutely agree. Hi, this I, is Sena. Oh, go ahead, Senna.
3: I'm so sorry. Uh, This is Senna. Uh, I was just going to add that when someone uses the term Chinese virus, they are insinuating that scientifically the virus is naturally occurring in Asians. And Judy and I could attest that there is nothing in the microbiology, chemical composition, or transmission of COVID-19 that gives any evidence of it being an ethnically generated disease. The viral origin has no genetic or hereditary components to it. Even the fact that it is a pandemic shows that the transmission of COVID-19 is no respecter of races. There is no ethnic race that is more or less predisposed susceptible or even resilient to COVID-19?
0: Yeah, I think that there are several um, parts of the challenge because what we're talking about is words matter. The fact that Corona beer has seen such a huge slump. There's just this sense that um, people are afraid. They don't want to contract this. They don't want to die, which is very understandable. But the fear, I think, drives as Eugene and Helen were talking about, the fear drives this um, desire to blame, to set blame someplace. And in a time like this, we more than ever need to band together. And my concern is that from what I can see from my standpoint, there's uh, there are Asian-Americans who um, want to downplay the use of Chinese virus um, you know, they're just like, it's it doesn't matter, it really did, you know, it did start there, so you know, what's the big deal? Um, I would love for all of you to help. Um, not only, I mean, we've been talking about why this is hurtful and damaging, but how do we navigate that? What happens when our kids are being bullied? This is happening now that school's out, it's not happening as much, but still in the neighborhoods, children are being. I just talked to several friends who their kids were being um, pulled out and called names. They've come home in tears. This has been a very deep concern. Um, in that as well, there's you know the elderly parents that we are looking after and the confusion that that brings. There's the sense of what happened to Vincent Chin, who was Chinese at the time and the auto industry was in the US was going bad and the Japanese auto industry was going well. He got mistaken to be Japanese by unemployed auto workers and was beaten to death. So there's literally a life and death kind of fear that comes about. Um, I think I feel it as an Asian American when I go out, you know, to pick up something at Target. uh, If I cough, there's just immediately this, you know, everyone leaves the aisle kind of a, a feeling. And it is, I think, not just perceived, but a very real fear. So I would love for us to kind of help listeners. Like, how do we talk to our kids? How do we even, um, speak up because our culture teaches us to, you know, the nail that sticks up gets hit down. How do we um, engage in conversation? Uh, there are a lot of trolls out there. Eugene has been the recipient of a, of a lot of that. And I've been so impressed with a gracious tone, but still sticking to truth and facts. And so how do, how do we do that? I'd love for you guys to talk
1: about that. Go for it, Helen. Helen.
0: Oh, my, there's a lot to talk about.
2: (laughs) Where should we begin? Well, I think that, for one thing, uh, you mentioned, Vivian, the impact that uh, even amongst Asian Americans, when there's uh, differences in how we are approaching the terminology, I do think it even makes it more difficult when there are some Asian Americans who are saying this is problematic and some who are saying, no, it's fine. It did start in China after all because the the impact for the Asian American community and the anti Asian bias that is growing um, is 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 real and it 's palpable and and so it does make it more confusing I think when you have the varying Opinions from the range and spectrum of Asian Americans uh, in terms of how they're responding to this, but I, I think it's helpful when we can be more unified in our in our response because the reality is that there is absolutely increasing Asian anti-Asian uh, discrimination and bigotry that's happening. Um, Dr. Russell Jung at San Francisco State University has created a place for people to start reporting these kinds of incidents. And even in the last two weeks, I think it's over 150 different incidents that are being reported, which means who knows how many kinds of incidents are actually happening out there amongst Asian Americans here in the U.S. And for our part as parents, you know, we're talking to our, we have three boys, they're all school age in the house, uh, definitely in the house at this point in time, but, but we're having conversations with them about how as this continues to progress, and not only are we having the health effects, but we are going to see economic effects too that are happening in our nation. And there will be people who, who want to find uh, a, a scapegoat in a way, they want to find a, a source to blame, which I understand uh, why that instinct is in us as human beings, but the natural target for that scapegoating and for that blame will be Asian Americans or anybody of Asian descent. And so we do have to be talking to our kids about what does that mean when you're out and about, you know, how do you respond when you are confronted with whether it's something more implicit or something very explicit in terms of people uh, responding to you as an Asian and as a person of Asian descent in a harmful manner. We're having to have those challenging conversations now. So We can have some Asian Americans who downplay it and say it's not a big deal, that it's called the Chinese virus, but I think that's a potentially damaging uh, posture and that as Asian American parents, we actually have to be very intentional of preparing our kids for a future in which they will experience most likely some aspect of discrimination, uh, some aspect of xenophobia as a result of being people of Asian descent out and about in the world and in our nation.
3: This is Sena Helen. You're you're absolutely right. We we have to be proactive in this. You know, just two weeks ago, I was walking down 45th in New York City, not a small town, um, New York City, and someone yelled out to me on the street for me to cover my mouth because I'm getting people sick. And then just this past weekend, I was in Washington D.C. with my family for spring break, and I noticed people were con- were giving my family considerable distance between us and them. And honestly, at the time, I, I kind of felt good about it because I thought, well, good, I'm, I'm also trying to social distance myself uh, and, and not get sick. But this is problematic, not just in the here and now, like what we're seeing, but to the point of the impact and how it can be long-term for us and our children, it's different if something originated in another country, like a movement because ideologies come and go. But when you're talking about a virus that originated somewhere and then terming the virus as if there's this perception that Asians inherently carry that virus, that could potentially bring a lifetime of stigma because what can happen is that an entire ethnic race can be deemed unclean. And rejected and isolated by their own societies. And to the point that Eugene made about, are we not American? I can only imagine how hard this is for Asian Americans who work in healthcare or those who are serving in military or civil service, because what it can mean for them in the long term is that the dedication that they have to their country and fellow citizens may not be reciprocated. And that's especially painful and concerning if it's iterated by our own leadership. And to further Helen's point, COVID-19 containment is only the beginning. They are projecting 20% or more job loss in the United States alone. And with the massive social and economic disruption that this will bring for many more months,
4: the resentment could last all the longer. Hey, this is Judy. Yeah, and um, the the history of of this sort of thing is really scary to think about. You know, like what happened in San Francisco's Chinatown, and people burned it down because of the plague. And just thinking, we need to contain it by burning them down, and of course, it didn't work because it wasn't the Chinese people who harbored it. It was flea. It was rats. And and you know. Um, That's why it's still endemic to parts of Western United States, even today. But um, yeah, it's, it's like an idea that takes hold and it doesn't matter how rationally you try to argue with people. Once it takes hold, um, it just, it kind of consumes people. And it's a way to react when people are feeling powerless.
1: I appreciate all of these uh, helpful, uh, both suggestions, comments, even I think warnings, uh, because I think we have to brace ourselves for the long haul. This is not something that's going to go away next week or two, uh, but I think the uh, impact is going to be something that will stay with our country and with us for a long, long time. Um, you know, I've received my share of emails and tweets and comments. Uh, a lot of it is just you know anonymous people. and. I think we have to be sure that our engagement isn't necessarily with just anonymous trolls. Um, But I think there is a lot of education to be done. And that's exhausting, if I'm honest. We're navigating our own health crisis. We're trying to make sure that our kids are safe. And I realized this week, wow, this country has a lot more to learn. Um, And it maybe shouldn't be a surprise, but I think sometimes when we're speaking about issues of race, issues of racialization and racism, I think in the past, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, so much of it has been dominated about black and white dynamics that there's really been very limited conversations as it pertains or intersects with Asian-ness and asian Americanness. ness And so I realized that even those, that, that some of the uh, bigotry isn't just from the larger Caucasian community, it's kind of like the larger populace. And so we've got to really be speaking and engaging these things. Um, none of these troll comments necessarily impact me. I'll just read one that really hit me personally, and it was painful. This person says, uh, "Eugene, it's okay to call it what it is. Also, shave that sorry excuse for a beard." That really hurt me, uh, just because I'm I'm proud of my beard. Uh, now, just to be very serious, I want to just say a couple things, maybe practical things. I think we have to be really realistic and just acknowledge the fact that we have to have really hard conversations with our our family and our kids, our churches, our, our parents. And the hard conversation is we live in an incredibly broken, fallen, at times violent, bigoted world. And so we have to just keep doing our part And at times it feels exhausting because our part might be a tweet, it might be a conversation, it might be an op-ed, it might be a podcast. And it feels as if it's not going to necessarily make a big dent, but it actually does really matter. Uh, But in the meanwhile, we also have to care for our own sanity, our mental health, our own flourishing. So we can't bear it all by ourselves. That might mean sometimes we have to give ourselves absolute permission to say, you know what, I'm going to let that conversation go. I'm going to let that comment go. I'm going to let that uh, op-ed go. But it does also mean that we have to do it collectively. You know, No one person can bear that alone. We can't simply say to ourselves, I can't say, you know what, I'm not Chinese, I'm Korean, and therefore it's not my issue. That is obviously very, very wrong. But I've heard, uh, Certain people use comments like that. This is a collective thing. Uh, It's not just an Asian American thing, but for me as someone that has a deep appreciation for this broken country, I wanna make this country a bit more healthier, a bit more sane, a bit more beautiful as well. I'll stop right there.
4: Eugene, I was gonna ask you since you're the pastor among us, uh, thinking about also like the early church and how they experienced persecution as Christians, it was religious persecution, but we can think more broadly of persecution, right? So in the United States, because it's such a racialized society, we experience racial persecution. What are some ways of thinking through this as believers, like theologically and um, ways to really understand our witness in a time like this?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, but it's also complicated because part of what i wrestle with is i want my brothers and sisters at least in faith to stand with me and that's not necessarily happening i think anytime issues of race comes up i don't want to make a broad generalization but i think on the most part there's oftentimes silence and during this particular case yes we obviously need to hear from theologians and pastors and church leaders uh, but we also need to hear not just from Asian pastors and leaders and theologians. We actually need to hear even more loudly from our non-Asian leaders, pastors, and theologians. A- and to my uh, experience so far, it's been fairly minimal. Uh, but I would urge those who might be listening or who might get a hold of this podcast, we need your, uh, we need your voice. We need your solidarity during this time. Um, certainly, I think from a Christian witness perspective, it hurts in the long run as well when the church is silent on these matters. And I think it also hurts Asian Christian witness when we're not speaking to these matters. And for that, you know, for that matter, I think I would love for our Asian leaders to also just be a bit more engaged, uh, a bit more voluminous when it comes to, um, justice matters even on things that don't matter to those that look like us, right? We need to be that which we're asking for others right now.
4: I think one of the things that's been hard for me personally um, about this issue at this time is that there has been such a sense of urgency to help people understand the epidemiology and the importance of social distancing and I felt like I couldn't sound all the alarms at once, knowing what I know. And even some of the the pieces that have been written about how Asian businesses and restaurants have been hurt during this time because of avoidance, you know, and urging people to go eat at those restaurants. I'm like, my re- response has been, no, no, stay away. Don't eat out. Stop, you know. Um, and And to think through how we can support them in different ways, still financially, but like buy gift cards, start a GoFundMe account for your, you know favorite Asian restaurants and businesses uh, while still respecting physical distancing. And so that's been really difficult for me and also just the complexity of the whole situation wrapped up with what's going on with China uh, politically. Um, It's been really hard to think through all the nuances and layers that are involved with that. And then it just feels like we're already dealing with so much um, in terms of trying to keep our elderly parents safe and their immunocompromised family members safe. And then, you know, racism on top of all that just feels like like this burden that is impossible to, con- to even like consider at this time, you know? And so that's just been my struggle personally, um, trying to figure out how, to, how and when to talk about it publicly.
1: One of the things that I'd love to add, uh, and this is really helpful, Judy, because I think you are talking about nuance. And uh, there's so much complexities and layers to this. And I've been appreciative of the daily coronavirus kind of update. And over the recent weeks, there's been a bit more of deepening understanding, trying to educate uh, Americans and global citizens about what's going on. And I know that there's a lot of issues going on. But I think what we haven't heard is nuance and education around how this impacts Asian Americans and people that are Asian around the world, that hasn't happened. If anything, I think it's been the opposite by labeling it a Chinese virus is that we've instigated something that has already been happening. So even before the usage of Chinese virus, uh, Asian Americans will know because we have our, our racism radar and we know that once this really began to hit the news We saw Asian businesses being impacted. We saw people being harassed verbally and physically as well. We saw nonsensical things that people spraying Lysol on people in public spaces. So we've known that this has been going on for a long, long time. And then to not have it be responded with education and calm and leadership, and rather than that being now instigated by the Chinese virus thing, it really is frustrating. And for me, it's, uh, when people speak about racism, I'm I'm not talking about this nebulous uh, concept that we struggle with academically, theologically. Um, I want listeners to know, particularly those that might not be Asian listening to this, when we're speaking about racism, yes, we're obviously addressing, you know, our, our, our construct, but we're also talking about bodily, physical harm on people. And that's the reason why I think uh, I feel a bit more urgent. Even though I'm getting tons of criticism, like, is this the thing that you're worried about right now in the midst of a, a global health crisis? Of course, we care about the global health crisis. Absolutely, we're concerned about ourselves, our neighbors, our, our nation. But on top of that, we have to spend some time acknowledging the real danger that's being inflicted upon people that are of Asian descent.
4: Yeah, so I don't know if you guys saw this. A Der Spiegel, a German magazine, they had a cover. It was all red, and the uh, title was um, "Made in China" with somebody in full personal protective equipment. You know, and so it's images like that like, all over the the Western world, really, that um, are doing a lot of harm. Uh, this is Helen. So one of the things I think that that underlying
2: force that is foundational to all of this is what we call that the perpetual foreigner syndrome, right? It's that whole idea that those of us who are from an Asian background here in the United States, carry that the weight of being regarded as not from here, right? As from some other foreign strange place. And so when things like Asian businesses are failing and struggling here in the United States or Asian owned and run businesses, there is a tendency, I think, from the dominant culture to think, well, those are not our people. Those are not really Americans. You know, they, they can take care of their own problems. There is that distancing that, occurs in, our, in and amongst the dominant culture that is part of this issue and part of the challenge of all of us that are Asian American here in this country. We continue to, to struggle and see the impact of that for ourselves and for our children. So I think we have to continue speaking out. We have to continue the process of education. We have to continue reminding our brothers and sisters here in the United States that we are Fully American. <laughs> yes, we have an Asian ethnicity and an Asian cultural background, but we are fully American, just like you. And to try to even name that and articulate that, you would think that by now, 2020, we wouldn't have to have that conversation so much. But clearly, we have to continue to make that known and clear, because I think, as recent oh, as recent dynamics can show, uh, that's not the way that the dominant culture still looks. Uh, those of us who are Asian-American. So it requires that continual process of education conversation. And yet recognizing, as Eugene has said earlier, there are times too that we have to step out just for our own self-protection and self-care. So I think that that both of those are needed, that constant knowledge that we have to keep the conversation going. And then that also recognition that we need to find times to give ourselves space to to recover, (laughs) recuperate, because those are not, easy conversations to have, especially when you're constantly hearing from other people uh, the opposite re- response. So there's that balance uh, that needs to happen for, for us all. But but yeah, this is this is not a short-term conversation. This is a, a long-term conversation that we're needing to be in. So we need to have some perseverance and some wisdom as we continue along this path.
0: Those are really great um, thoughts. And I, I think what I'm realizing as You know, people are indoors now spending copious amounts of time on social media, you know, reading Twitter feeds, trying to watch the news, whichever um, intake that they're bringing. There's so many um, different sources. And so I would love to hear from you all, like, what are some reliable sources of information, medically, socially, otherwise, like, it's just so... It's so complex. And then there's, you know, conspiracy theorists and all of that. I mean, it, it's not hard for us to get lost in just all the information. So, how do we responsibly and soberly um, get the intake so that we can speak to? You know the epidemic, the pandemic, the you know again terminology. Um, what are some trusted sources in your mind of where we can get accurate information to be, become more equipped to be Hi, able this to? Hi, this is speak Sana. Uh, one thing that confusion. I've been
3: using a lot is the Johns Hopkins University COVID-19 dashboard, and what that is is they, it provides real time updates on the number of cases deaths and recoveries and where it's happening. It also provides expandable maps and trend graphs, and it's it's very reliable. Johns Hopkins University has been on the forefront of public health for, for decades, but especially when it comes to COVID-19, they've they definitely uh, stayed on top of it. And, Judy, if you have other sources to add beyond CDC and World Health Organization and NIH.gov, you know, for uh, transmission updates and things like that, please feel free.
4: I I compiled a list of uh, primarily epidemiologists and virologists and immunologists uh, on Twitter and a list that people can subscribe to. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily going to provide a lot more clarity for the average person because there's a lot of technical information that's shared, and you can also see there's disagreement among experts, and that's the, kind of the nature of you know the situation right now. Knowledge is expanding, and people are doing research like on the fly and sharing data, and it's not always peer reviewed or is sort of lightly peer reviewed. And so, you know, there's a lot of discussion, um, but I think that that list is probably still better than some of the other lists out there with people, I don't know, just sharing opinions.
1: I want to take a moment to apologize to my parents for not becoming a doctor. Um, Right now, I'm sure they're saying, I told you, you should have been a doctor. But, uh, you know, I think this is an important time because there is so much information out there. Uh, It's just so expansive. And going back to your point, Vivian, that... um, I think it's important for us to maybe deepen, not necessarily cast the net so wide, but to think about where we need to go a little deeper in gathering information. But even in addition to information, I've been really reminded about how important it is to stay connected during this social distancing time, uh, to call people, not necessarily because they're experts, but because I really want to acknowledge the importance of soul care. And maybe this is my pastoral lens coming into this, but. I have found myself diving layers after layers into information on the internet to the point that my head begins to explode and I become more anxious and more fearful. So I'm not necessarily concerned about information. I'm concerned about making sure that I'm supplementing all the information that I'm consuming with actual actual real human interaction during this time by being creative. I think even this Zoom talk for me is really life-giving. Uh, to know that there are other people that are struggling through similar things. And maybe just to also extend grace to ourselves, uh, we are in unprecedented times. And uh, it's not just changing day by day, it's changing hour by hour, it feels like sometimes. This has been the longest week of my life, I feel like. And uh, so I think we need to also extend grace for ourselves. But just a quick reminder, let's not lose out on the importance of human um, connection and community during this time.
2: This is Helen. I'm not so much going to give uh, suggestions for resources per se, but maybe taking the conversation back to other things you can do within your own, within your own home and within your own family context. I feel like what I'm. Instinctively, wanting to do with my kids, um, with my three boys, is to try to find ways to help impress upon them the the goodness and the blessing of our ethnic background. So we have a lot more time. We're all in the same house. It's amazing how far a big batch of kimchi and a lot of rice can go. So rice, ramen, kimchi—we're pretty much having that every day at our house. But th- that's almost even. In my subversive way, just a bit of resistance to say this is good. You know, our culture is good. Our ethnic background is good. Yes, we're going to try to binge watch things like uh, "Always Be My Maybe" and "Crash Landing on You." It sounds so frivolous in some ways, but anything that I can do, even in a subversive way, to try to impress upon them that your ethnic background and your ethnic heritage. There are things to be celebrated, enjoyed. Those are ways too that we can help impress upon our kids that how they are created uh, is is not a mistake and it's not a curse. It's a blessing. And that internal knowledge of who they are and that internal appreciation of how they've been created will hopefully be something that can help them when they're out and about in the world and they receive some of the racism, bigotry that's out there. That they can stand on that knowledge to say, "No, you know, I, what you're saying is is false." and Evil and hateful, and I'm not going to have anything to do with it. So those are some things that we're doing internally in our own house to try to remind our kids that that who you've been made as made as a Korean American is uh, is a blessing and not a curse.
3: That's a wonderful point, Helen. Uh, this is Sena and just uh, really encouraging our ourselves and our families to focus on what is praiseworthy, and even even outside of our homes, reminding our children you know not this is not what every this thing is happening yes it's out there racism is out there uh but it's not everyone and reminding them who our our friends are and those that um, that do not feel uh that we are to blame as an ethnic race You know, there's so many of our neighbors and uh, church friends and family and schoolmates and coworkers that would never in in a million years uh, blame our ethnic race for a virus or a pandemic, you know, um, and, and just really trying to remind them that, yes, people have been unkind, but typically
0: that comes from unkind people. That's really excellent. I think we, uh, and I love this idea that we stay connected in the midst of it. There, uh, I think one of the most beautiful parts of being an Asian American is the collective that we do have. And when we are linking arms and staying in connection, I think that there's um, a, the not feeling like it's all on us is uh, a huge gift that I think we bring to society even Um, so I would love to see more of that and my my hope is that even with the podcast that there are at least some places that we are celebrating um, our ethnic journey the food that we have and to not uh, minimize the, the significance of being being able to be rooted in our ethnic journey and it 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 varies. And I think of uh, my friends who are um, transracial adoptees and what their experiences is, is different than one who is living in the middle of Koreatown or Japan, little Japan, little Tokyo or Chinatown, that they're, the experience of Asian Americans in our country is so varied and keeping that in mind as we um, continue forward as well. So even Having some places where we can connect in and feel like, okay, I feel validated and understood and, and, and in that way empowered to, to stay the course. So I think there's a beauty and a value in sometimes having safe spaces where we're, we can speak freely and talk about things um, in order to be able to engage in the larger community that we live in. So I think those are all really, really important, important conversations to have. Um, I would love to hear just even, um, we've been throwing around some different terms, but even for listeners to understand like, what is exactly a pandemic? We are using that. Can you help educate us a little bit on some of these medical terms? Um, what are, you know, I appreciate Santa what you were talking about in terms of, um, what a virus cannot be contracted by a, a, a people group, you know, um, just, Getting some accurate facts out there. I would love for you to share maybe some really quick bullet points of just facts about what's happening medically. Sana,
4: you want to take this? Hi, this is Sana. <laughs>
0: sure. So,
3: an an epidemic uh, is an infection or disease outbreak that's affecting a disproportionately large number of people. That's within a regional population or community at the same time. So when something goes to the scale of a pandemic, that means that it occurs over a wide geographic area affecting an exceptionally high proportion of the population. So in this case, it would be in general, the global population. Pandemic does not mean that every single citizen of the planet is going to contract the virus and have the Uh, effects of sickness. It just means that it is uh, an exceptionally high proportion of the population. And there are other factors that influence the spread. Uh, And of course, as I mentioned, they have nothing to do with uh, genetics, uh, but many of them are environmental factors. So oftentimes it's it's a lot more about population density. You know, so when we talk about, well, this originated in Wuhan, you know, why Wuhan? Well, one factor is that there are 11 million people in Wuhan and it is also a a city where there is frequent travel within and out of Wuhan. Just to give a frame of reference, New York City has about 8.7 million people. So Wuhan is significantly larger. It also has to do, like I said, with travel and it is greatly, transmission is greatly impacted by social habits. And when it comes to hygiene, again, when we're, when we're looking at this being a pandemic and except, affecting exceptionally high proportions of population all around the world, uh, it really shows us that the whole world uh, could do better
4: at hand washing not just one group of people. Yeah, this is Judy. And I think that what's different about this and why it's become a pandemic is because of how highly contagious it is. And, you know, through airborne droplets, through touching things that, um, you know, doorknobs, handles, light switches, things like that. And it's different from... Yes, and uh, even when
3: people are asymptomatic.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, even when they're asymptomatic. That's right. I think, is, is this right, Senna, uh, that like three quarters of new and emerging infectious diseases in people are uh, come from animals? There is a zoonosis. That, I, I, you know... I want to say the CDC had that number, but I, I don't have it in front of me. They had that number, and if that has to do with
3: the number of viruses that affect humans as compared to what is found in any living organisms, everything from animals to fungi, uh, you know, I, I, don't have the information okay. on that, but um, so I, I honestly couldn't say if the CDC re- reported that and they haven't refuted that, especially since information, especially on, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 are constantly being updated hourly. Um, then, then I, you know, I that must be the latest that we have. Okay. All
4: right. Yeah, I was doing some research on SARS, uh, which was back from 2003. You know, people caught it from an animal. It was mm-hmm. a wild animal called a masked palm civet, and uh, but it it was also a bat coronavirus. And um, there thought that you know, like. The bat droppings, it's present in there, and the the civets eat fruits, they forage, they get infected, and then uh, the wildlife gets um, sold in markets in close proximity to humans, and that's how humans contract it. Um, Sorry. Yes, and bats especially,
3: because they travel so far and wide at such a a speed. Bats and snakes are often, you know... culprits behind spreads of, of coronaviruses, mm-hmm. especially. You know, and, and we know that SARS-CoV-2 is genetically related to 2003 SARS, but right. of course the disease symptoms it causes uh, are, are different. Mm-hmm. Just to clarify for our listeners, SARS-CoV-2 is the virus, and then COVID-19 is the disease or also known as the malady or sickness or illness that SARS-CoV-2 causes in hosts, which can vary in severity in its signs, signs being what's visible and symptoms, symptoms being what patients feel. So you may see in the in the general press this being called SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. They're referring to the same issue, but SARS-CoV-2 is the viral name, the virus name, and COVID-2, or excuse me, COVID-19 is the name of the sickness that it causes once a human contracts it.
0: What I find fascinating, however, is you know, I have been reading um people's reactions to bats and, you know, and all the while, you know, in our own country we have portions of people who eat squirrel and you know, snake, you know, different types of snakes. Um, possums and raccoons. I mean like we we eat a lot of strange things that I have never tasted before, but certain parts of the country are known to do um, eat certain meats that I just find like to me they'd be kind of along the lines of roadkill kind of a thing. And so there's just this sense of um, we we other, all the time. So what, you know, there are some countries that are completely horrified that we would eat cow or pig, you know, like these the, are the, the, what seems normal to us. So I, it's a very interesting, it's sociology is so fascinating to me in terms of just the, the study of how people perceive what it, I mean, on one hand, we probably in the United States have such a love for dogs. I mean, we have, you know, Pet hotels. We our dog goes to the dog hotel, and there's a bone booth where the dog. If you miss your dog too much, they will bring the dog to the bone booth, and you can call them, and they'll put your the phone up to the dog's ear so you can talk to your dog. Like, I mean, the ridiculousness to that degree, and then you have other countries where they they potentially would eat dog. You know, it's just this craziness that I find um, fascinating and confusing at times.
4: I came across an article by a guy named Christopher St. and It was published in the LA Times uh, about nine days ago. And he has been living in China, I believe, 14 years. And he wanted to, to nuance this conversation that people have been saying, these wet markets should be banned. They're gross. They're disgusting. Um, but he clarifies what they are. And he said that um, journalists have been mixing up wet markets and wildlife markets that most wet wet markets are not wildlife markets and that confusing the two is actually dangerous. Um, He explains that wet markets are actually what China calls its fresh food markets, like the kind that you would see all over the developing world and in a lot of parts of Europe even. Fresh stalls of vegetables and where butchers sell fresh meat, primarily pork. And it's like the daily market for like tens of millions of Chinese people uh, who would rather talk to um, the people who are actually providing the food and they're like a cornerstone of china's food distribution system and then um you know he's anyway i think what i'll do is link to this article in the show notes so that people can read it so i think it's interesting to kind of understand better you know what what is even talking what what the media is referring to these wet markets because All people show are these disgusting YouTube videos as if that represents the entire picture of the distribution system of China. And that's super unfair, you know? So honestly, the more I research, the more I feel like we just know hardly anything about anything. That's my conclusion and greatest contribution to this entire discussion.
0: (laughs) I am laughing. Well, I want to keep... honor the time. So it's nine Oh five, right? Nine Oh six. I can't read my, I have, I have blue blocker glasses on and I, so I can't read anything, but yeah. Anyway, um, I am so grateful for you all jumping in on this conversation and I will, um, would love for you to email me any of the links that you have or articles, Judy, that you were referring to, um, Senna, the, um, Johns Hopkins, You know anything that would be helpful for listeners, Helen? If there have been particular um, articles that you have found to be helpful in any of this, the terminology. But um, yeah, thank you so much for taking time. And I I think we will need to revisit again probably, (laughs) but at least for our first first pass, I'm really grateful that we've been able to get some good information out to people. So. Thank you for being part of this episode. Thank you. Thank Thanks you for you having us. Thank you for joining us this week on Sunday is Here. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment and subscribe to the show so that each new episode automatically downloads to your device every week. And thank you for sharing this podcast with your friends. We would love for you to rate and review the show so that others can find out about us. A special thank you to the brilliant team that makes Some Days Here possible. The Somedays Here logo is designed by Jocelyn Chung. The original music is by Joseph Patrick with PassionNet Productions. Show notes on the website are by Vicki Pham. The sound engineer is Aaron Kretzman. The Director of Design and Website Designer is Kenny Wong. And the Executive Producer is Chantelle Reynolds. Have a great week. And we look forward to you joining us again for another episode of Someday is Here.